Uh, I want us to remember that. Yeah, you can clap again, sure. Yeah. Uh, I really want us to remember that some of the things that we're singing about uh, this morning as we move through this text and bear some of those things in mind, I'll sort of bring it in, I think, at the end a little bit. Are we good? We're good. All right. Um, look, we are forging ahead with uh, Genesis, and we come today in our forging ahead to the story of the flood. Now, <laughs> this is a popular one, eh? Uh, everybody knows this one. You don't even have to be in the church to know this story. Everybody knows this story, the story of the flood. Noah and the flood, all right? Everybody knows this one. I mean, you've got everything with this one. You've got, like, there's action figures that have been created, and this needs to be on first. There's action figures. Um, so kids, like, add this one to your Christmas list. Um, I don't know. I think I would probably take... Either the one at the top left there, because you get a tiger and some lambs included with it, or pro wrestler Noah at the bottom. I like, he's got kind of the Aquaman sort of vibe to him there. I don't know. I mean, it's a bit of a toss-up, but you could just ask your parents for both. I, it's popular enough to breed these kind of, of action figures, um, a musical. Let me tell you, this is three hours of my life. I'm never getting back. Uh, uh, a feature film that stirred up a lot of interest and a lot of controversy. Uh, there was that a few years back. And, of course, there is Ken Ham's Ark Encounter, which he built in Kentucky, of all places. I have, part of my family lives in Kentucky. Please don't tell anybody that. Um, it is true. <laughs> but, yes, the Ark Encounter. And here you're going to find a host of attractions and eateries like the 2 by 2 Petting Zoo, Shem Sandwich Shack, Papa Noah's Fine Wines. Yeah, I'm making all these up. None of these are there. Uh, Ken Ham hasn't taken any of my suggestions. But what is there? What you will find are sort of models of theorized living quarters. Um, it's very well, I mean, Noah's... Quite the interior decorator, let me say. I think you can get most of this stuff at Ikea if you are interested. There are models of the animals that they say the Ark would have transported. And yes, that is a dinosaur there, just in case you're interested. And also, like, signs with sort of logistical data showing how Noah and his family would have managed all of these things, like keeping all of the animals and feeding them and watering them and a whole bunch of theorized procedures that they would have used. And, of course, we can see that the aim of this whole exhibit, really, is to try to, to prove some sort of scientific feasibility of the Genesis story or to, to prove, I guess, that the story is a literal beat-for-beat -beat account of verifiable history um, or it's probably also, I'd say, to kind of strike a blow against uh, secular biologists and geologists and hydrologists and the like. Unfortunately, though, when that is the aim, the, the, these aims sort of reflect very modern and Western concerns. And I guess it's ironic, really, that, that modern Western science is, is generally considered to be sort of the enemy for the people who oversee these things, uh, for the people who devise an exhibit like this. But the exhibit itself is actually trying to tell a story that, in, in such a way that modern Western scientific minds will accept. 
And in doing so, it's really imposing, and this is sort of what a lot of this whole Genesis series has been about so far, if you've been here. This is really imposing Western values and expectations upon an ancient document. Right? This is an ancient document. It is ancient literature. And, and really, an exhibit like this, as well-meaning as it might be, and I have no doubt, I really have no doubt that Ken, Ken Ham is a very well-meaning person, um, but it's making no effort to actually read the document in its cultural context. And in, in a lot of ways, it actually fears reading the document or reading Genesis and this story in its cultural context. Because this is ancient Israelite literature. It is ancient Israelite literature. And what I want to do this morning is to read this text as much as possible in the way that an ancient Israelite reader would read this text. Asking, what is the story? What is the story that the ancient Israelite author wants to tell us? So what we'll see, I hope, this morning I hope what we'll see, is that this story is about God dealing with disorder and chaos. He's dealing with this disorder and chaos by returning the world to a state of non-order and then restoring the original order of creation. It's actually a recapitulation or a restatement of the creation account that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm hoping that we'll see the important literary links, and they're there, the important literary links between this passage that we're going to see this morning and Genesis 1 and 2. And for everybody who ever asked me back in the day, what are you going to do with that degree in literature? Well, this is the moment. This is the moment where I'm going to use that degree in literature. We're going to talk about those literary links. Let's start asking the question, or by asking the question, why, in this story, why does the flood take place? Well, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to Genesis 1 to understand it. Because in Genesis 1, what we see is a world that begins covered with water, as we talked about in week one of this series. And we, we said that the ancient Near Easterner would see this state, this water-covered world, as a state of chaos, a state of non-order. And then we see God in that passage, in Genesis 1, pushing back, pushing back the chaos, as Ben reminded us last week, pushing that chaos back to the edges of creation, ordering the parts of the world into an ordered system, giving each part a role and a function within that system, naming those things according to the function and roles that they played. So importantly, yes, chaos is pushed back, but it's still at the edges, sort of, it's still there hovering around at the very edges of creation. We're going to see how important that is today. So God has ordered the world in Genesis 1. He has created an ordered system. But as we saw Ben talk about last week, we get to Genesis 3 and we see human disobedience taking place. So disorder, disorder has taken root in God's ordered world through this human disobedience, through humans trying to take order and wisdom into their own hands, trying to sort of, if you like, displace God as the center of order, trying to be the arbiters of good and evil, the arbiters of wisdom. And we also saw 
last week that that disorder very soon grows into violence. And that's what violence is, really, when you think about it. Violence is trying to impose your order onto someone else. And we see in Genesis that Cain murders his brother Abel, the first instance of violence that we see. And that trend of violence progresses through Cain's descendants. And the author of Genesis shows us that. If you're interested, you can look um, at the list of Cain's descendants. It talks about a man named Lamech who sort of um, brags about murdering someone in revenge. And so we see this, this disorder growing. We see this violence growing in the text. By the time we get to Noah's story in chapter 6, God feels that he must respond to this. And this is what it says. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them interesting how much that's important, isn't it? We don't really talk very much. It's funny, I could preach a whole sermon about violence and non-violence in the Bible. I don't have time for that this morning, but it is interesting how important that is to this text. And we read on, God says this, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And so God gives that instruction to build the ark and eventually indeed as promised the flood comes and it says this on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights the water swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The water swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. 15 cubits, about 7 meters. There you go. I've sort of worked that into metric measurement for you, you know, because we're all about the metric system. Now, I want us to notice that what's being described here, and this is really important for us to kind of get into, that what's being described here, the flood as it's being described, is being described according to the ancient Near Eastern view of the world. Not the Western view, the ancient Near Eastern view of the world. We looked at this uh, week one, and Ben looked at it last week, where we have the waters coming up through sort of the fountains of the great deep, which is below the land, if you like. We have the waters coming down from above the firmament. And remember, the firmament dome is that like sort of solid dome that God creates to separate, if you like, separate the waters on the ground from the waters above the, above the sky or above the dome. So the waters coming down from the firmament through the, quote-unquote, the windows of heaven. And that's what they sort of believed was that there was these, you know, doors and windows in the firmament. You just open up and the water would fall out. Um, it's, a, it's a little simplistic but yeah more or less yeah uh and notice it is emphasized that 
the mountains are fully covered. This is, this is ancient, again, ancient Near Eastern literature. Ancient Near Easterners are big fans of hyperbole. I'll just say that, right? That is very common in ancient Near Eastern literature, hyperbole. Hyperbole is the purposeful exaggeration of events and descriptions, right? That is incredibly common in, in ancient Near Eastern literature. Jesus uses it. The Old Testament uses it. Other ancient Near Eastern literature that we know of uses it. We should not be alarmed by the use of hyperbole in a text. I, we use it a lot. I don't understand sometimes why this is, I don't want to get off on my bugbear here, but I don't understand why we use it so much, but we're offended when we talk about the Bible using it. I don't know. I'm just going to throw that out there. That's not really what I want to talk about, though. I don't want to give you a lecture about hyperbole and its use in the text. The important thing to see here is what is happening. I'm going to try and explain what's going on or what I think is going on in this, in this text. What's happening? Well, as we said at the beginning, God is allowing the world to return to its pre-creation state. God is allowing the world to return to its pre-creation state. Remember that we said chaos was represented by water. That's the way ancient Near Easterners would have seen it. God in creation, in the creation account, has pushed that water, that chaos, to the edges of the ordered world, below the great deep, above the firmament. He's gathered it into seas. Now God is releasing that chaos. He is allowing it to return, to cover the earth, so that the answer to disorder, to human disorder, to violence and corruption, the answer to disorder that's entered the world is to return it to non-order, to return it to chaos. Now, that would be pretty dismal if that's where we left it. But it's not. Because what we see next is actually like a second creation. It's a restatement of Genesis 1, where chaos is again pushed back. And like I said, I'm hoping we'll see the links between events in this passage and events in Genesis 1. The first thing we see uh, when the flood has taken place and covered the earth and Noah and, and his family and all the animals are floating around on the top of the top of the water, the next thing we read, or later we read, that God will first address the waters, the situation of the waters. It says this, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. It's funny how they distinguish between those two. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, if we're paying attention, that should really draw us back in our mind to Genesis 1 and the wind from God that moved over the waters before anything was actually created. And that's not accidental. Then the next thing we see is that God once again contains the waters. It says, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters gradually receded from the earth. And that should call to mind the separating of the waters that God performs in Genesis 1. Next, after this, 
The dry land once, once again appears. We see the tops of the mountains emerge from the water, just as in Genesis 1, where dry land appears once the waters have been gathered into seas. And moving to that, now if you remember the, the first week, again, I'm, I'm call, I keep on calling attention back to the first week. If you haven't, I think it's up on YouTube. If you, if you want to sort of back up and figure out what I'm talking about, it's there somewhere on the, on the YVV page. Um, moving on from that, where am I now? Goodness, what have I gone to? Uh, in this, as in the sort of the first three days of creation, I think Ben mentioned this again last week, the first three days of creation were about form. The second three days of creation are about filling that form. And so here, as on the second three days of creation, the world will once again be filled. God has separated again the waters. He has caused the dry land once again to appear. Now here on the fifth day, sorry, I don't want to go back. On the fifth day, Birds, once again, will fill the sky because on the fifth day, God filled the sky with birds. Here, Noah sends birds again into the air, a raven, a dove, to test the level of the water, of course. And there's a connection there between, between the birds created and the birds in the sky that Noah sends out. And finally, as on the sixth day of Genesis 1, animals and humans return to the earth. And it says this, God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now, we're talking, about, we're talking a lot about literary connections here. I'm just going to pause for a second and say this. I know, I know there's a very good chance that you may have come here this morning with these types of questions, right? So did the flood actually happen like this? Um, did Noah build a 150-meter-long ark and uh, fill it with animals? And, you know, um, did enough water fall on the earth to cover all the mountains by a you know, depth of seven meters? Um, if we go trekking around Mount Ararat in Turkey, will we sort of stumble upon or could we stumble upon the remains of the ark? I, I understand. I really do. I understand those questions are there. We all have them. But I will say that those questions are themselves very, very Western questions. Because they're questions focused on um, historical veracity and on scientific fact and things like that. Genesis doesn't give us the means to answer those questions. It just doesn't. Genesis doesn't, doesn't try to answer those questions because remember, we're focusing on what's happening in a very ancient Israelite text. This is an ancient Israelite text. The author just isn't interested in proving science to us. He's not giving us complex hydrological explanations. Right? The author is not laying out logistical details like building costs or feeding and maintenance problems. You know, that's, that's not the concern of the text because this is not a science text. This is not a modern Western history text. This is a piece of literature. And we need to ask ourselves, what is the story? What's the story that this piece of literature wants to tell us? 
That's the way we should be reading and trying to understand it. What's the story that this author, that this text is trying to tell us? Well, the story that I think it is telling us is this. God is committed to the world that he created. God is committed to the ordered creation that he has made. And importantly, God is deeply concerned when anything corrupts it. God is deeply concerned when anything corrupts it, like human violence. God is serious about addressing what corrupts his creation. And that's what those literary connections we've seen this morning are all about. And that's what those connections between Genesis 1 and this story are about. They're not somehow accidental. They are there on purpose. The author definitely wants us to see this as a restatement of creation. That God is starting the world anew. So yes, God is indeed committed to order, but importantly in this story, I think, is to notice that God is also committed to humanity. He is committed to the people he has made. And that might seem strange to us in a story where most of the people in the world drown. But let's, just by way of contrast, let me tell you about another flood story that we have from the ancient Middle East, from the ancient Near East. This story is called Atrahasis. Uh, this is a very old Babylonian flood story. It's very old, and, and this is one of those ones we found that we can sort of compare to um, the Genesis flood story. In the story of Atrahasis, and Atrahasis is the name of the, the hero in the story. In this story, the gods, the Babylonian gods, make humans... And this is the point of making humans, to feed them so that they can relax. So basically the gods just want to like sort of kick their feet up, put their head back, and the humans sacrifice to them, and that feeds them. That's, that's the goal of creating humans. That's the only reason they're made. But the problem is the humans start to breed, and they become too numerous, and they make too much noise, and so their noise keeps the gods awake. So the chief god, whose name is Enlil, the chief god sends a flood to destroy all of humanity, and I mean all of humanity. He has no intention of letting any of them survive. But fortunately for us, one of the, one of the gods, one of the like, lower-level gods, he sneaks away and tells his favorite human being, Atrahasis, how to escape this flood. And he tells Atrahasis to build a boat. Very, very similar, in fact, to the Ark description in Genesis. It's a two-story boat. It's wood, it's covered with pitch, it's the whole bit. Atrahasis builds this boat, takes his family, and a lot of artists, this story is all about like saving like culture as well as human beings, but um, he takes a lot of artists with him on the boat uh, and, and craftsmen and things. Once the flood subsides and he lands, um, Atrahasis then comes out and sacrifices to the gods, at which point the gods realize how short-sighted they've been because they haven't had any humans to feed them. And so once that sacrifice takes place, they think, oh, that's right. We did quite enjoy the food that the humans gave to us. That's this story. Uh, in Atrahasis, there is no intention whatsoever of saving humanity. But in Genesis, God is not capricious. God is distressed at the havoc that human beings are causing to each other. Uh, and as we've seen, the flood is God's reset button for both creation and for humanity. Right from the beginning, 
of the story. Saving humanity is a part of the plan. In Genesis, as Ben sort of talked about last week, and, and this, will just, this theme will continue, God has a renewal project in the works. Creation has been corrupted, but God has a project of renewal in the works. An intention to renew creation, to renew humanity, and of course, the story of Scripture hinges around this renewal project. The project will culminate with Jesus himself, but it will begin in Genesis with covenants. And indeed, after the flood, we see the first explicit covenant between God and human beings. It says, you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. And that calls us back to Genesis 1.28. That's not an accident. And continuing on, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth and of course the sign of that covenant and all covenants in scripture always have a sign the sign of the covenant is a rainbow it's the assurance that god is not going to continually hit the reset button on creation He's not going to continually flood things, so human beings don't need to fear or be afraid that, that's the, that that will be the case. Now, next week, I'll speak for Ben on this, because <laughs> he's up. Next week, we're going to see another turn toward disorder perpetrated by human beings. Another turn toward disorder and human hubris. But God is now going to address the problem of disorder differently. He's going to address human corruption differently than he has. He's going to address it through covenant. And in two weeks' time, we will see the key covenant uh, in Genesis, really the, the covenant that all of these stories that we've been talking about sort of lead towards. So that's next week. Tune in uh, and show up because it's going to be a good one. I'll, I'll be here. So in, in sort of a concluding way of going about it. I was going to, I was going to do some questions. We were going to talk about them, but I did want to, I, I just, I feel like I want to say this. This passage, I understand very much. This passage can be difficult. It can be very, very difficult. Um, what do we do? What do we do with a passage where a flood sent by God destroys all but eight people in the world? What do we do with that? As Christians, what do we do with that now? What does it do? Um, what does it do to our image of God to read a story like this? Does it make God seem like a monster? They're hard questions. Do you know what? When I was younger, um, if you had asked me, I mean, quite a bit younger, but when I, when I was younger, if you'd asked me like honest and hard questions about that, I probably would have given you some answer like, well, the Bible says that's what God did. So that's what he did. We just have to accept it. I wasn't, a very, I wasn't necessarily a very safe person back then. Um, but, yeah, that's the answer I would have given you. Oh, the Bible says it, so it just must be true. Get over it. But the Bible can't just be read. The Bible has to be interpreted. And I'll say this. The Bible says can be a very, very dangerous tool 
in misguided hands and some dark dark chapters in human history have taken place because of what the bible says now don't get me wrong i love the bible as much as much and more than most people i love it but sometimes we are guilty of treating the bible itself as a god uh as treating of treating the bible which is a book or a set of books treating that as somehow a God in and of itself. We have to remember with a story like this, and I want to emphasize this again, I know I've said this a lot, but we have to remember that a story like this is literature. It is literature. It can show us some things about God. It can show us some things about God. But only Jesus can show us what God is really like. Only Jesus shows us what God is really like. So I just want to say, if, you, if you've come this morning um, and you've seen stories like this and you've read stories like this in, in especially the Old Testament, you know, and you've, you've struggled with these, right? And that's fine. That's absolutely fair. I think we all have. And if you struggled with these stories and um, you've struggled with an image of God that is angry um, and monstrous and vindictive and vengeful and... Um, capricious, uh, if, if you've struggled with that image of God, as I have, um, I'd really, look, I'd really like to pray with you this morning. I'd, I'd, really, I'd really like you to find some release in that. Um, and anybody, like, I'll go over there. And if you, if you want prayer for that, I, I'd love to pray with you. And I know there'd be other people who would love to pray with you about that. There's a better way to look at God, and that's really what Jesus is. There's a better way. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think that's where I'll close it up. I can't really say anything better than that. There is a better way. Mm-hmm.